Moving on. Verses 6 through 13. The book of Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul. If you're new to our faith family, please use that Red Pew Bible, page 986. You can take that home with you as well. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, it is our gift to you. So Paul wrote this letter to a young church. And sometimes when we think of the Apostle Paul, we have certain ideas of what we think he's like. Our caricature of Paul might look something like this. Battle-tested, right? Road-worthy. A man among men. Never suffering a loss of morale. Able to soldier on. He's strong. Without needs. Certainly without the need of self-disclosure. Most men that are men keep their cards close to their chest. Never letting anybody know what's really going on. Which is why... Chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 13, is so astounding. Perhaps the most fascinating part of all of Paul's writings. It really is. The level of self-disclosure from the Apostle Paul borderlines on embarrassment. He displays so much emotion for these people, it is beyond what you'd want to hear from your parents as teenagers in any public setting at any time. He sounds, ladies, as if he's not gotten enough sleep. He's been up all night with the kids. A psychologist on strictly human terms would have a field day with Paul. Is he off his meds or is he on his meds? The emotional swing in chapter 2 and 13 is kind of like my emotional swing last week. I'm sorry to put you through that. First service to Sunday school class. What a swing. What's going on with Paul? We meet him today, not according to our thinking, our caricature, but according to what he really was. Not battle-tested, but battle-scarred. Soldiering on with low morale. In our passage this morning, Paul is in need of comfort as a man's man. It's amazing. He's the founder of of the Christian church as we know it and as it has become. And you might say, for good reason, we might even say for very good reason, we find Paul here where he has wrung himself out. Think back for a moment to the two to three months that precede the words that are written here. Think back to a second missionary journey where Paul begins at Philippi and his imprisonment. Imprisonment imprisonment. Think back to the way he was reviled and then run out of town in Thessalonians. He had to leave under the cover of darkness, we learned, in fear of his own life. Then he finally gets to Berea. And yes, they are more noble than the Thessalonians, but nevertheless, chasing on his heels is a group of people, angry Jews, that want to force him out of there. So he sets out to Athens, alone, Then to Corinth. His presence in Corinth, he says in 1 Corinthians 2 3, that I came to Corinth in much trembling and in much fear. Elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 11, he goes on to list his sufferings, and this is what he mentions towards the end. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
He's been on the run. He's wrung out. Perhaps we might say, Paul needs a sabbatical. Now look at the emotion in the effusive prose that he has here in chapter 2, verse 17. He is writing, we learned last week, he says in 2.17, with great desire. Don't forget, this is a people that he has only known for a couple of months. And he says here that this word great desire is our word. We learned last week is the word for lust, that Paul lusted after them. That's how much he wanted to be with them. It seems that he has this insatiable appetite to be with them. By the way, I've only known you for six to eight weeks. It seems disproportionate, doesn't it? Chapter 2, verse 19. When he thinks about heaven, he thinks about them. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, we could bear it no longer. The only thing I can liken this prose to is someone in spring who is in the throes of puppy love. Love for the first time. And they haven't seen their beloved for 36 hours. No, no, no. Puppy love, 36 minutes. He repeats in chapter 3, verse 5, I could bear it no longer. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, you can't believe the thanksgiving I have to God for you. I feel for you in the presence of God. Chapter 3, verse 10, he talks about most earnestly wanting to see them and pray for them night and day to see them face to face. This is one of the most enlightening depictions of the Apostle Paul. What accounts for such display? Last week, we learned that he had the purpose of wanting to show them his affection for them and the depth of it. We definitely know in chapter 2 through 3 that Paul is not a professional pastor. Praise God for this church that does not move pastors on every five years to get somebody to bring something new and fresh. You allowed Pastor Jeff and Carol to uh, end their retirement with you. You've allowed me to raise all of my kids here. It's amazing. 12 years. Christ was six months. That's awesome. Paul's committed to these people. And the depth of his commitment is validated. We learned last week that he sends Timothy for them. He says, you want to know how much I love you? I am sending Timothy, and I'm going to be left alone. And now we come to the second part. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10 this week, 11 through 13 next week, and he moves on to show how he's comforted by them. That's this week. Next week, he's going to show how he prays for them. And when we read this, you're going to understand why He has such emotion. Let's hear God's word. We're going to read it all, 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. 
For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is God's inspired word. God, we thank you for this morning for your inspired word that you tell us that every single word of it is profitable. Every single word of it uh, can equip us for the work of the ministry. And so we pray that you would make your word profitable this morning, that we would mix it with faith and put it into action for you, in your power, by your spirit, and for your glory to the Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Fascinating section, isn't it? You think you could hear it in there? The Apostle Paul, he needs comfort. Would you ever have thought that? Your picture of the Apostle Paul, someone who needs comfort? Well, what was Paul hoping to hear from Timothy about the Thessalonians that would make him become comforted? The nature of the comfort is textually found here in verse 6. So follow along in verse 6, we find out exactly what's going to bring him comfort because he says here, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us, here's the phrase, the good news of your faith and love, reported that you always remember us kindly and you long to see us as we long to see you. Do you hear the gigantic sigh of relief when Timothy brought good news? Good news. What does your brain think of when you hear the phrase good news in church? The gospel. It's the good news. Did you know there's only one time in all of scripture where the word good news does not refer to the gospel? And it is here. Paul is so excited about how they are doing that he actually takes a word that is reserved only for Jesus' death and resurrection and the invitation for you to repent and believe that he calls this good news. I mean, that's astounding. Well, what is this good news? There's two ends to it. We see it there in verse 6. First, the good news was what he had gotten about their faith. Good news about their faith. Good news of your faith and your love. But the second aspect of what he hears is not just what he received about them, but the feelings he now knows they have for him. It was good news for the Apostle Paul to know that they remember him kindly. And that they long to see him. Friends, remember, in one sense, it is the Apostle Paul's fault that they are in such affliction. In one sense, their life has been turned upside down because they heard the Apostle Paul's message and received it. And he says, you long to see us. We're comforted by that. It's the content of the good news. Their faith and how they feel towards Paul. I want to spend just a couple of minutes on this good news that Paul got about them. The good news that Paul got was about your faith and your love. The central object of what was going to bring Paul comfort was their faith towards God and their love towards man. What lifted Paul in the moment of personal weakness, discouragement, and aloneness it wasn't just what God was going to do for Paul. Yes, I'm sure Paul was crying out and praying night and day for God to comfort him. But it wasn't just what God was going to do for, 
for Paul. It was what the church was going to do for Paul. You see the connection there? It isn't just this God that we can't see that's invisible. He works through a people to comfort the pastor. It was what God was doing in them. Think about that for a moment in your life. What brings you comfort? We are all in need of comfort. Your life is filled with daily afflictions. Your life is filled with daily distresses. What will lift you? By what are you comforted? Freezer full of ice cream. (laughs) Cupboard full of salty chips. Wanted to get both in there. Saw you guys going, not ice cream. Saw the eyes go, oh yeah, it's that pretzels, (laughs) right? But Paul says, what comforted me, it's according to what God has done in the lives of others. I'm going to get through it. I think we are. Convinced today, resolute. Think about FCBC, what brings you comfort? Calling Al Davidson this week in Florida, in a local church, as a widow. Says, Pastor, I'm taking a Bible study class midweek. I got church tonight goes, this stuff is deep. <laughs> you guys know Al. He's laughing on the phone. He goes, but don't worry, Pastor. I'm not marking up my notebook. I'm bringing it back because I hope to see you, and I want you to use this notebook. All right, we're going we're gonna to do it. Helene Russell coming back four weeks in a row from Louisiana with a smile seeing Patty Calander run to her in Palmer Hall. You weren't here consistently, Helene, before Louisiana, and now you have been. It is a comfort to others. Danny Dehart, considering training for ministry. No girl Jordan than get your kids in Boston. Tom and Kelly Hilton, welcoming in Nate Alford at Liberty University, partnering with Christy and Evan. No greater joy than to see that our college students are walking in truth. When Bill and Kathleen went to Virginia for vacation, they found Christy. Christy serving in a local church says, Bill, I want you to meet We're going to do it. (laughs) Some of your great-grandchildren in the faith. Right? What is Christy saying? News of lasting life change in those that we serve is one of the greatest encouragements to press on in difficult times. The recollection of what God has done through us is often what keeps us at our post, reviving our flagging spirits. What keeps our youth ministers in youth ministry is when our college kids come back. Amen? Not just college kids. Working students continue to go on, serving the Lord. We're not promoting one over the other there. A little disclaimer. My comfort is established, Paul says, as good news because I heard about your faith. Church, if we really care about others, we will rejoice when we hear of other people's stability in the faith. Right? Why we want to send care packages to our college kids, our working kids that are away from home. We want to see them established in the faith. 
while we do our Boston trip to help them find local churches wherever they are because we want to see them established in the faith. This word faith is so crucial to Paul, and it's what brings him comfort. It's not the first time we've heard the word faith. There is faith is mentioned, first of all, here in 3.6, your faith, but it's also right before it in verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your what? Your faith. How's your faith doing? It's been his concern. Now he receives a report in verse 6, and he calls it good news. He goes on to say in verse 10, I want to come to you to supply what is lacking in your, in your faith. So I had a concern for your faith. I was comforted by your faith. Now I want to fill up your faith. What is this faith of the Thessalonians? Go back in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. And let's learn about their faith. 1 Thessalonians 1, 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your what? Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. You received the word of God. You accepted it. Your faith. Your faith. The faith of the church strengthened the pounding heart of the apostle Paul when he had a dark night of the soul. When he was wondering if his ministry was in vain, it was the faith of the church that comforted him. So we have to ask ourselves, do we possess the kind of faith in the gospel that has the capacity to strengthen and comfort the lives of others? Do you have the faith that is able to comfort the lives of others? Can your faith be the content of what will keep your brothers and sisters in ministry serving alongside of you as you lock arms with them? Is your faith a source of comfort for the pastors, the elders, your small group shepherds, your Sunday school teachers, or is your faith a cause of anxiety and concern and worry? Your faith, the source of God's comfort for God's children, who are laboring in distress. Now let's look at the nature of their faith. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. If you're here as an unbeliever, this is a great time for you to learn what is true saving faith, not just intellectual knowledge about Jesus. How does Paul describe their faith? Here it is, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Here's the first part of faith, how you turn to God from idols. What is faith? It's turning to God from idols. Number two, Serving the living and true God, number three, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. Three aspects of faith. It's what it looks like. Do you this morning have this kind of experiential faith that says, I have turned from idols to God? I have turned from idols that have never satisfied, and I have found Christ to be my all-satisfying treasure. Friends, this can be any idol today, not just a wooden one. Don't think of that. If you're here as an unbeliever, think about your idol, your worship, your approval, your desire, your approval of others. Has that been an idol in your life? Maybe it's the pleasures of life that have been an idol. Maybe it's having notoriety, being, having done something of substance. Have you turned from dissatisfaction to true satisfaction in Christ? If you have, guess what? You have a component that will lift others in time of need. If you have turned 
from your selfish pursuits to God-glorifying pursuits, you have an aspect of comfort for your parents physically, children, teenagers here, or your spiritual parents. If you have a turn, not only was our faith described by turning, but also by serving. You've turned, but also turned to serve the living and true God. The question here is, are you serving? A faith that serves, not just a faith that turns. Did you know that your service, church, can be a comfort to those who go elsewhere? See a man serving who was birthed into faith at FCBC, and it brings comfort to others. Right? Think of that when you are serving in the nursery. Think of that when you serve as a greeter. Think about that when you are laboring in the word. Think about that when you go to bed praying for this church, that in your serving, you are comforting the rest of the believers in their distress. Is it worth it? You're serving. Your trips to Loudoun multiple times a week is a source of comfort for us. If you're not serving, you're robbing the church of comfort. that simple. Thank God that so many serve here. Not only that, they waited. Waited eagerly for the return of Christ, which is why we're going to take communion. We take communion. We remember that. We wait because we take it until when? Until he comes. So this caricature of Paul, a self-made man, a man without needs, a man who keeps his card close to his chest, who doesn't feel, is just that, a caricature. Paul says, I'm comforted by your faith, and that opens the door for him to have this very strange portion of God's word. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, very strange that our apostle Paul would say this. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord, Paul saying, I will keep going if you keep going. I will keep standing if you keep standing. I will keep walking if you keep walking. What a great thing. He moves from being a man who is isolated, who feels that all he can do is wish, and the dark cloud finally clears, and it elevates him to this point of thanksgiving in verse 9. He says, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For you are all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. What would cause you to erupt in spontaneous joy? Spontaneous thanksgiving? You got a new raise this year. New raise. You got a raise. I don't know. You got a new car this year. The only way the Apostle Paul can say these things, and the only way you could feel this way, is if you have a connection to someone because you are their spiritual parent in the faith. Paul says, you are my child in the faith. Their lives happen to intersect when God was at work uniquely in them both. You're not going to feel this way about anybody else. I think what would enliven a local church is the belief that we have to persevere in witnessing, knowing that as we witness and we throw out that gospel seed, God's word is so powerful, it is going to bring new life. And next thing you know, your heart is paired with a new believer because you saw them get, not new thinking, born again, right? That's what binds you together. 
friend, would you see that Paul finally gets sleep at night because of the welfare of their faith? Parents, go to bed at night. What keeps you up? The well-being of your children. No matter what age, Sharon DeHart's laughing back there. Grandkids, still keeps her up at night. What enables you to sleep? Exhaustion. <laughs> it's your wife's turn, okay? No. What, what enables you to sleep? The welfare of your children. The Thessalonians walk. It contributed to the apostle's joy. It contributed to his comfort. And now he gives thanks to God because truly it was all God's work, not his. I give thanks to God. That's great Christian ministry, right? The end goal is to give praise to God, not for us to say, oh yeah, look what I did. Paul directs it to God. What thanks can we give to God for you? Would you see that Paul is not a lone ranger? He doesn't retreat to the Lord's presence and try to ignore people, have no need of all those troublesome Christians out there. He delighted in the Lord, absolutely. But he's not ashamed to show his dependence on other believers for his joy and comfort. And he's a man's man. There is nothing sissy about showing your need as a spiritual father, as a spiritual parent, that you are dependent upon others' walk for your joy and for your comfort. True Christian ministry is never impersonal or mechanically task-oriented. True Christian ministry takes place in the context of loving relationships. And those loving relationships are formed through costly self-giving. Here's an application for us as we close. Would you remember Hebrews 13, where it tells Christians to be very careful how they treat their leaders because your leaders, your elders, they watch for your souls. And Hebrews 13 says, it's important that they watch for your souls, that they take on that task with joy. Allow them to do their work for joy. So if you are opposing tooth and nail at every step, they might see their ministry to you as a first-class pain in the neck. And yes, Christian leaders are to serve the church and to build her up. And Christians, by your obedience to the faith, actually help to contribute to the joy and the comfort of your leaders. It's reciprocal. It's mutual. Pastors prize the love of their church, and they love their flock. Mutual love, close fellowship are of great value to gospel proclamation and gospel ministry. May we have many prayers and much labor for mutual love and close fellowship. You might have heard that heaven and hell are only slightly different. I'll get you to sit up straight. Both are dinners. Both have long tables where people have six-foot spoons. The only difference is that in heaven, people use the spoons to feed each other, whereas in hell, they only try to serve themselves. The love Paul had for the Thessalonians was reciprocated. The togetherness, the one-anotherness is what brings them together together. And may we continue to nurture that at FCBC.
There are so many ways we could just give praise as an elder board for this church and the love that you have shown us. And we pray that you would feel our love for you. Obviously, Paul feels his greatest love for the church is expounding and teaching the word of God. I can't wait to come to teach. It's a great way to feel loved. May we together as a faith family possess a faith that is capable of comforting many. Does your faith comfort many? No, not many. Does your faith comfort all? All are in need of comfort. Does your faith towards God and your love towards man comfort all? Do you have a faith towards God and a love towards man? Let's go ahead and stand and we'll sing our closing hymn. We're going to sing three verses of it. Stop, take communion, and then end with a song because in the New Testament, they took communion and they left singing a song. Doug, what's the verse? What's the song? Jesus paid it all.